You're listening to audio from Cornerstone Covenant Church in Big Spring, Texas. Thank you so much for joining us online. To find more resources or to donate to this amazing ministry, please visit us at cccbigspring.org or text your amount to 84321. Hey, we're so glad that you're here. Now prepare your heart to hear a word from God. God is good. And all the time, I want you to grab your Bibles and go with me and return with me to the book of Genesis, the third chapter. If you've been a part of this series, you know we've been in this, ch- in this series uh, entitled Lies Couples Believe. Say that with me. Lies Couples Believe. And so we're going to return to the book of Genesis uh, to pick up where we've been in the last couple of weeks. I'm excited about where we're going uh, over the next couple of weeks as we continue on in this series and while you're turning to Genesis the third chapter uh, for you who have not been a part of this series we've started uh, three weeks ago a series entitled lies couples believe and the topic of that particular series is simply unmasking the lies of the enemy of our relationships and there are some lies that that we at times choose to believe and it infects and affects our relationships and it's not limited to romantic relationships it infects and impacts all relationships But I believe that God is trying to take us somewhere. Week one, we were in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, and we talked about strange voices. Say that with me. Strange voices. Uh, And then week two, we came back in Genesis chapter 3, and we moved on to verses 5 through 8, and we talked about blinded by sight. Say that with me. Blinded by sight. A couple of those weeks, we're going to quickly recap uh, so that you can build upon where we've been over the last couple of weeks. I believe it is important. Uh, But today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. We're going to start there in verse 9 through 11. It is our custom to stand for the reading of God's word. So if you would indulge us, unless you're holding a baby or having some other type of physical ailment, please take your liberty to remain seated. Uh, But for those who can stand, I'm going to ask that you would stand. Uh, And as we're preparing to read Genesis chapter 3, we're going to start there in verse 9. As I was preparing for this particular installment of this particular series, I thought about Uh, This little boy who was on this, uh, spending some time on the beach, and he was, of course, on the the bank there, uh, actually uh, on on the sea line, Uh, and he has his little boat, he has a little boat out there, and and, uh, he's got it in the water, and for some reason, of course, he hasn't anchored, but over time, I guess it unties, and, and he's distracted doing something else, and when he turns to notice, he noticed his boat has started to drift out to the ocean. Uh, And so he goes from being distracted to now despondent. Uh, He's lost hope because he's seeing that this is is taking place. And because he's not able to reach it, he goes from being distracted to despondent to now discouraged. It is a little bit different than uh, despondency is because that is a lack of hope, but now he lacks confidence to be able to reach it. So as he's sitting there on the bank, as he's sitting there uh, on the beach, he begins to cry, and a person walks up and asks him, why are you so discouraged? And he points, and he notices that the boat has started to drift out. So the individual took rocks and started throwing it at the water. The little boy, being confused, becomes irritated, and he says, what are you doing? I'm already losing my boat. Why are you throwing rocks? And the individual continued to throw rocks. 
and he is really angry by now. He's frustrated because he can't reach it, and he's wondering in his mind, why is this person throwing rocks at his boat? But all of a sudden, something strange happens. He notices that the person is not actually throwing rocks or stones at the boat. He's actually throwing it past the boat, and it's causing a ripple effect, and the boat is coming back to shore. I come to tell somebody this morning, you may be getting some thrones, uh, stones thrown in your life, and it's all about God's design that which was lost is now coming back home again. And God will use anything he can to get you back into the place where you need to be. Can I get a witness here? So, so in Genesis, in Genesis, I'll be reading from the New King James Version. I believe that your translation, if you have a different one, you'll be able to follow along. You'll find these words recorded. It says this, Genesis chapter 3, verse 9 through 11. Now then the Lord God called to Adam. Somebody say Adam. And he says to him, where are you? And he says, I heard your voice in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of the, which I've commanded that you should not eat? This is what I'm going to do. I want to bring your attention to verse number 9. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? Here we are in our third week of uh, lies couples believe. And what we're going to do today is we're going to unmask the internal attacks of the enemy that brings division in our message entitled, where are you? Now, I want to say to both you are on site, and I'm delighted that you're here, and those who are online, you're going to run into people who say, I'm not in a relationship, so I don't need that information. But let me tell you something. You do need this information, regardless of where you are in your relationship. And here's another thing. Your children is going to need this information. Your grandchildren are going to need this information. And it's important that you get it. Look at your name and say, where are you? Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, I ask that you would bless our time in the word is our prayer in Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. God bless you. Thank you for being here this morning. As we've been in this particular series, I've told you that we have taken a three-pronged approach in, in, in a, to run the risk of boring you. Uh, have you ever had your parents say something over and over and over again? You could almost finish their statement. And even though it, you may resent it or you become even a little cynical or perhaps even sarcastic, at least you got it. Can I get a witness? That's what, it, that's what sort of pastoring sort of feels like. You go over it and over it and over it again. And in hope that you're saying, oh, I get it now. I get it. I understand. So what we're going to do, I told you at the beginning, we're going to take a three-prong. How many? Yeah, we're going to take a three-pronged approach of building this series. Three ideas. Even though we've got points that we're covering every week, there's three fundamental pillars that I want to keep in your mind as we go through this. I told you that that three-pronged approach comes from this idea of tripod. comes from the Greek word tripas, meaning having three feet. When you look at the camera in the back of the room, it is standing on a tripod, three feet. Why? Because it is supposed to give it balance, not just help it to stand, but give it balance. And so that's what I want to do with you today is I want to continue to emphasize the importance of the pillars or the prongs or the legs that we're using to build or establish this series on. The first thing is I told you that it comes from this idea. Number one comes from this idea found in John, the eighth chapter. If you go to John, the eighth chapter, verses 31 and 32 declares this. It says that Jesus says to those Jews who believed him, if you abide in my word and you are my disciples indeed, 
And if you shall not, now notice he says the prerequisite is if you believe and if you abide in my word, he says, you are my disciples indeed. Then he goes to verse 32 and he says this, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall what? Make you free. So the first pillar is if, if the truth sets you free, then what will a lie do? Stay with me here. I want you to think about that in heart because we oftentimes look at knowing the truth will make you free, but oftentimes we don't consider what a lie will do. A lie will keep you in bondage. So that's the first thing that needs to be established. Second thing we need to take note of is this idea of the enemy's dialogue with Eve. This dialogue was designed for a purpose. It wasn't just this casual conversation. Have you ever noticed how certain things or certain people come back in your life again when you're trying to get yourself together? Oh, I wish I had some real folks here. Amen. Here comes Slick Head Eddie and Fast Freddy. Come hey. So, so all of a sudden, she's moving on with her life. She's in a relationship with Adam. And all of a sudden, the serpent begins to speak to her. Why? Well, we've discovered when we look at the text, particularly verses 1 and verse 4, and we're going to cover that here in a second, it is designed, number one, to cast doubt. Somebody say cast doubt. It is also not only to cast doubt, but to cast doubt for the purpose of planning a lie. And I'm going to show you that biblically. Cast doubt, plan a lie. Why is that important? Well, the first reason why he's doing that is that anytime, and particularly when you think about God's relationship with Adam and Eve, it was designed to breed distrust. It was designed to breed distrust. In other words, anytime uh, uh, you can cast doubt on something or someone, it will affect how you receive it. So not only was it designed to breed distrust, the second thing it's designed to do was erode influence. And in this case, to erode the influence that God had in Adam and Eve's life. Now, when you see that, you can relate to that even in your own life. Anybody you don't respect, anyone you're not connected to, if the truth be told, they, you, they lose more and more influence in your life. And the more you trust them, the closer you can bring them. And then the more you closer you bring them, the more trust you can bestow upon them, and they will gain influence in your life. Anybody that goes in the opposite direction that you don't trust, you will start to not only see them get distance or you remove from them, you will also realize that they don't have influence in your life. So this conversation that the enemy has with Eve is not only designed to breathe distrust but it's to erode her influence or his uh, God's influence in her life the third thing we see uh, within just this dialogue of casting down and planting the seed of a lie was this cutting off her support system notice if you've ever studied this chapter notice how it's not that God left them but they chose to get distant from God so not only do we see this idea of poison the whale, let me tell you the last thing that we see in our third pillar or prong that we've been using out this, throughout this series comes from Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. 2 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, verse 4. He says this, For the weapon of our warfare are not carnal, but they're mighty through God by the pulling down. Somebody say pulling down. Come on, somebody say pull it down. Pulling down of strongholds. Now we understand that the Greek word for stronghold is fortress. But it doesn't just mean fortress, it means to be fortified. So a stronghold, don't miss this, stronghold is a lie you have chosen to believe. And when you give it 
a permission to stay. When you say it's okay, you give it permission to fortify itself in your mind. So I want you to think about the times that you have believed. It's one thing to hear a lie. It's an entirely another thing to believe the lie you heard. Particularly lies that you have believed about yourself. So, these are the three pillars that we're going to establish as we go through, or have already established, and I want to build upon them today. Go to Genesis chapter 3, and let's take a look at verse number 1. Because I want to show uh, someone who here that perhaps this is your first week. If this is your first time at the 11 a.m. service here at Cornerstone Covenant Church here on site, I want you to raise your hand real quick. If first time, 11 o'clock, don't be ashamed. We ain't going to throw nothing at you. Okay, 11 o'clock. Let's put our hands together for them. We're delighted that you've chose to come and be with us and, and, and give us the opportunity to be with you today as well. Consider uh, chapter 3, verse 1 says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast, than any beast in the field which the Lord God had made. And he says to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree in the garden of the garden? Notice that. He said, Here it is. Hey, girl. What's up? Here it is. Did God really say that? He ain't planted a lie. All he did was move the dirt out of the way so he could cast doubt. He's, he's getting ready to prepare to poison the whale. He's trying to breed distrust. He's trying to erode God's influence in her life. And he's attempting to cut off the support system. Now, the Bible goes on to say in verse 2, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it nor touch it lest you die. This is what I want you to understand. Even though we know biblically she did not hear the word directly from God, there is no doubt in verse 2 she knew God's instructions and God's expectations. Bump your name and say, he's talking to you right there. Yeah. Yeah, some of us are ignorant of what God's expectation is, and some of us are not, and we did it anyway. Talk to me, somebody. So, here it is. The Bible says in verse 4, Then the serpent says to the woman, You will not surely die. Remember, verse 1, he creates doubt. By verse 4, he plants the lie. The lie was, you shall not die. We know that's a lie because God had already previously said, you shall die. So here it is. We see in week one, this comes from the message, strange voices. We learned in week one that there are times in our lives that there will be strange voices. Eve has an encounter with a strange voice. Consider verse five. But God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open. Say that with me. Your eyes will be open. One more time. Your eyes will be open. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Well, this sets her up because now he's still communicating with her. And this sets her up for verse number six, which here we discovered last week, week two, how you can become blinded by sight. I want every person to hear me this morning. You can become blinded by sight. I dare you look at your neighbor and say, he's talking to you. And look at your other neighbor and say, if he's talking to me, that means he's talking to you too. Yeah. So here it is. Consider verse 6. The Bible says in verse 6, so when the woman saw, notice, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. Did you catch that? 
she saw that the, that the tree was good for food. Now, wait a minute. God had already told him that if you touch it and mess with it and ate of this, he says, you will die. So now she saw that it was good for food. So now we see Eve is being deceived into thinking that something that God said would kill her is now good for her. That's deception. And it's all coming from a lie. Not only that, the scripture says that it was pleasant to the eye. Here we go. This idea of pleasant to the eye is an indication that now Eve is being drawn away of her own lust. The Bible teaches us in the book of James that all, all men are drawn away of their own lust. Here it is, and enticed. And when enticement is not dealt with properly, it gives birth to sin. And if you don't cut sin off in its infancy and you stay in willful, unrepentive uh, sin, it will eventually give birth to death. Now understand, biblically, the definition of death simply means separation. So it doesn't always mean physical death. It could be the death of your reputation. It could be the death of your marriage. It could be the death of your influence. It could be the death of your career. Talk to me. It could be the death of your ministry. Whatever it is, it could be the death of it. So the Bible teaches that in the book of James. And now we see that now because it's become pleasant to her eye, she is being drawn away of her own lust based on the attraction that she saw and her ability to connect to this desire which is feeding her appetite. In other words, we call this being seduced. So not only does she go from the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eye, the third step that happens that seals the deal is the Bible says, and the tree desirable, somebody say desirable, to make one wise. Here we find that Eve is now hooked because now Eve takes pleasure in the thought of consumption. In other words, she hadn't touched it, she hadn't eaten it, she had never tasted it, but she is now, it's in her mind. Have you ever just looked at something and said, mm, mm, good? Okay, I'm thinking of something good, y'all. Don't, don't, don't get caught up. Come on, come on back. Come on back. No, come on back. Amen. We're trying to get you delivered, praise the Lord. He, look, look, she's become hooked by the very thought. She hadn't even touched it. She hadn't even eaten of it. She is now being consumed by just the very thought of it. And she's all she's got in her mind, the word literally in the Hebrew, the desire means that she is now taking pleasure in just the thought of consumption. And all of this is going on just within her mind. So the result was this. Because after these three steps, the Bible says she then takes the fruit and she eats it. And I previously told you that sometimes you can look at something just too long. Look at your name and say, you know he's telling the truth. So, so also she gave to her husband with was with her. And here it is. The Bible confirms. And he ate. Now, over the last couple of weeks, if you paid attention, you noticed that our emphasis at one week was dealing with Eve. The other week dealt with seduction and uh, deception. Today, what we're going to do is switch gears a little bit because it's important, and that is focus on this idea of Adam. What I want you to do is notice verse 9, and I want you to pay attention to the rhythm of the text. Notice this. The Bible says in verse 9, Then the Lord God called and said. Notice that God called Adam. He called Adam. That's what the scripture says. He called. Somebody say, he called. Notice he called and said. For you that may be just looking at the text says, what is the big deal? But if you looked at God's previous conversations with Adam, you would see that God just spoke or God just said, which speaks to three things. First of all, because God called him and then said, speaks number one of 
of, of Adam's position. It speaks, secondly, of his proximity, but it also speaks of his posture. Y'all stay with me here this morning. You see that Adam is not in the place that he once was, so it speaks to position. See, a position is the place where someone is located. So when God called him and said, it was an indication to, for us to know when we read the text, is that Adam is not in the same place he once was. That means, come on, stay with me, it means that he was here, but now he's there. He was here, but but now he's there. You used to be here, but now you're. So it speaks to his position, but not only does it speak to his position, it speaks to his proximity. It doesn't just show that he was there and now he's over there. It speaks to his proximity. Pastor Willie, what do you mean? Proximity is a measurement of space. It, it is a determination of closeness. In other words, it was an indication that when God called him, it not only showed that Adam was not in the same place, that he was not here, that he was over there, but it was also an indication that he had gotten further away from God than he should have been. Not only do we see his position has shifted, not only do we see his proximity has changed, but we will later discover that in the text we see something go on within his posture. Posture deals a lot when, it looks, when we look at the physical side of it. It deals with the way we stand. It deals with the way we sit. But it also can be a display of our disposition. In other words, sometimes you can see a, a person's attitude on their face. God did that with Adam. I mean, with, with, uh, God did that with uh, Cain and Abel. When Cain and Abel brought their sacrifice, the Bible says God received uh, uh, Abel's sacrifice, but Cain he rejected. And God says to him, why hast thou continence fallen? In other words, you're walking around with an attitude. In other words, your posture has changed. So when God calls Adam and says, it speaks to his position, it speaks to also his proximity, and it speaks to his posture. The Bible says that God called Adam. Somebody say Adam. I want every brother to hear this. Notice that Eve ate and gave, but God called Adam. Y'all better hear me. I said Eve ate and God never showed up. Eve ate and God never said a thing. Eve partook and God never rang the bell. But when Adam bit, God said, hey, where are you, Adam? In other words, why would God do that as it relates to this idea? Because this is a principle found in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it is a picture of God's expectation of a husband and wife wife it speaks to headship and it speaks to order it is not saying that Adam is more important than Eve it is saying that God says I'm going to start with the person that is responsible so he starts if you study this text you'll go on to find out that God first calls Adam secondly he calls Eve and then he calls the serpent to a place of accountability so when God calls out to Adam he says I got to go to the headship because something has went wrong how can we be here if I got you here y'all better talk to me here so God is saying to every man I've given you not just a wife I've not given you just a home but I've also given you responsibility and if you want to get the big piece of chicken at the table you got to do the big work You know what I mean by big piece of chicken. Mama would tell the kid that daddy's chicken. <laughs> daddy hadn't eaten, leave daddy. For, uh, did y'all ever grow up like that? Okay, I didn't know I wasn't the only one. They, they, they don't, don't, that's dad's plate. Daddy's out working hard. Daddy's doing what he's got to do for the family. I'm going to take care of this man. He's going to get the big piece of chicken. You get what I'm saying? 
So I want you to understand that God established this headship. He comes to him for a place of order, not because he's more important, but because of his responsibility. And God said to him, where are you? Where are you? What does that mean? Well, Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17 says, and the Lord commanded the man. Somebody say the man. Now, it's tough being a man, but somebody's got to be one. He says, he commanded the man, saying, In every tree, the garden, you may freely eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So even though we know that Eve got the information from Adam secondhand, if you will, we see that, that Adam received the instructions from God, the expectation from God concerning this tree directly from God. But you need to also know this. God is not investigating Adam. God is not interrogating Adam. God is calling Adam to a place of awareness of himself. In other words, where are you now, Adam? In other words, Adam, are you aware that you're not in the same place, position? Adam, are you not aware that you are in a gulf, uh, you have placed a gulf uh, between you and I, and it's because of your choice you made, proximity? But then you see this rhythm in the text because it's an indication that, Adam, have you become aware that on this side, before you ate, is different than where you were when you ate versus where you now are after you have consumed? And I think sometimes people take sin lightly that they think that there's no impact. But the Bible says the wages of sin is still death. Yes, we know that the gift of God is eternal life through our, our, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But there's still a penalty for sin. Yes, we can get to heaven. But if you get caught up and you go rob a bank, you can go to heaven, but you're still going to prison. Talk to me, somebody. So I want you to understand that don't live as if there's no consequences for our actions. Verse number 10 says this, and, the, and he, Adam said, here it is. I want you to check this out. He says, I heard your voice. Notice this. God comes and says, where are you, Adam? And Adam says, I heard your voice. And when I heard your voice, notice, notice there's no question that he can hear God. Many of you say, well, I don't hear God. It's not a question that you don't hear him. You just don't like what he's saying. And so you want to try to pretend that you can't hear him. And when you can't turn his voice down, you turn everything else up. Been there, done that, got the t-shirt, I understand. Hey, man, don't get mad at me, boo-boo. We're going to help you before this is over with. I just want you to understand that you got to take that serious because really you don't realize conviction is designed to save your life. That conviction of saying no, 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 and you ignored it. See, the Bible says God's love is long-suffering, but that little thing that's inside of you that keeps crying out and God says, no, don't do it, that is the thing that God has given you to literally save your life. Your life of your marriage, the life of your influence with your kids, the life of your finances, the life of your ministry, everything that God has given you, that conviction is designed to say, don't go there. Turn around now. Repent now. Don't stay there now. If you don't believe it, study the book of Isaiah. Isaiah the 59 chapter verses 1 and 2 says God says my arms are not so short that I can't reach you he says but your willful disobedience you I have not left you you turned away and left me so we see Adam is in this place where he says I heard your voice look at your neighbor and say I heard him and then he says this and I was afraid now wait a minute how are you afraid because you need to understand 
before this moment, there is no indication of fear with Adam and God. Adam is in a place, check this out, Adam is in a place where he's naming animals. Lions are showing up. Tigers are showing up. All of these things are showing up. And guess what's happening? He's not afraid. But now he's eaten something and partook in something, and now he's in a place where he's now afraid. Notice now his posture is a disposition of fear. So not only did he hear God, not only has he become afraid, but the Bible says he tells God, and I was naked. I was naked. Notice Adam has now become awareness of his own nakedness. But remember, Adam was already naked. Not only was he already naked, both him and Eve were both naked. And the Bible confirms in chapter 2 that they were naked and not ashamed. But now you've partaken in something, and now you wasn't ashamed, and now you are ashamed. But now he's aware of it. Listen, it has become his nakedness has become a distraction to him because this is an indication that Adam has now, listen, don't miss this, now Adam, because of what he's done, now it has changed the way he views himself. Pastor Willie, what are you saying? Disobedience affects and infects how you see yourself. Look what he goes on to say. He says, I heard, I was afraid, I was naked, and then he says this, I hid myself. Say that, I hid myself. So as a result of hiding himself, because based on how he sees himself, Adam hides himself, notice, but he also hides himself from God. Don't miss this part. Because it is an indication that now, not only is it an indication of how Adam now views himself, it is also an indication of how Adam now sees God. He wasn't hiding before. But now all of a sudden he's hiding from the very presence of God. And we find that even now in the 21st century that people like Adam are doing the same thing. Adam was afraid of God's presence. Adam was afraid of, God, afraid of God's voice. Adam was afraid of God's word. And so guess what he did? He fled God's presence. He fled God's voice. He fled God's word. And let's be honest, there are men that are still running from the presence of God. Verse 11 says, and he, God, said to him, who told you that you were naked? Here it is. God is saying, who you been talking to? Y'all help me preach and look at somebody and say, who you been talking to? Now just keep looking at him and wait for an answer. See, God knew, but did Adam really know? Did Adam notice that the things had shifted between him and God? Did Adam notice when he chose what he wanted over what God wanted? Have you eaten of the tree? which I commanded you that you should not eat. This is what God's point was. He says, Did you, have you been messing with something that you don't supposed to? Some of you are wondering, why is my relationship with God not the same? Is it be, it, could it be said you have been messing with something that God told you, commanded you not to be involved with? See, now, now wait a minute, wait a minute. We ain't going to spend all of our time looking at Adam and Eve because that's their story. Bump your neighbor and say, what is your story? What lie have you chosen to believe? So this is what I want to do. I, I want to share with you some lies that couples believe. Now, this is what I want to do. I want to tell you about lies that we believe in relationships, lies we believe about ourselves. But I also want you to know that there are also lies that we believe about others, even though we are in a relationship. Here's the first one. Don't miss this. 
I know he or she really doesn't love me. That's a lie. I'm not saying that you can't be in a relationship where people, where there's, it's absent of love. But more times than not, in my experience, over 20 years of ministry, pastoring, counseling, I've discovered more times than not, people that believe this lie are really saying, here it is, I don't know why he or she would love me. I don't know why because the way I live does not merit or, or the things that I've done does not earn anybody love. So it's really a better picture of a lack of self-esteem. So the reason we believe the lie that nobody really loves me is because we really have a low self-esteem when it comes to relationships. Not only that, here it is. I've also discovered that some here, I want to say not all, that believe this lie, many believe this lie, many of them really don't truly love themselves. So they struggle with the idea of someone else loving them authentically and genuinely. It is not that you haven't been loved, here it is, but you just wasn't loved enough. Thirdly, I've also discovered that others that believe this lie, a few of them come from homes and families where there's a lot of dysfunction. They come from homes where there's a lot of fighting. They come from places where there's a lot of even, even divorce that runs rapid through the bloodline. And even though they have survived it, Many of them do not come out unscathed. They do not come out unharmed. They do not come out uninjured. And so oftentimes a seed, listen to this, a seed of insecurity is planted inside of them. And as a result, they project their insecurity onto the other person. Oh, you heard it. Uh, I'm so ugly. And you're like, no, baby, you look at, man, I just don't feel like myself. No, baby, you fine to me. You look good to me. I don't care what nobody else says. You, baby, you look good to me. And then you're no, I'm just so ugly. And about time they say this about 20 times in a day, you look at them and say, but maybe you are ugly. <laughs> Not because they're ugly, but because you're being exhausted by, come on, y'all, talk to me. Don't leave me hanging. You, you just become exhausted by this insecurity. And because of this, the person is now projecting that insecurity onto you. And as a consequence, they have chosen to believe the lie, he or she does not love me. Listen, so you must choose to believe, no longer believe that lie, but you now must believe the truth. And the truth is this, here it is, I am lovable and I am capable of giving and receiving healthy, honorable, respectable, genuine love. Pastor Willie, why would you go so far to say healthy, honorable, respectable, genuine love? Because oftentimes we are okay receiving a cheap substitute. Because sometimes we are so desperate for love that we're willing to take something that we know is not healthy and substitute it for something that would be healthy. When we go further on in this series and we started looking at Gomer and Homer, uh, 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 Homer and Gomer's life, you're going to start to see some very powerful truths as we dissect, dissect this as we continue on in this series. Let me give you another one. Let me give you the second uh, lie that couples sometimes believe, and that is this. He or she is nothing without me. That's a lie. But sometimes we believe this, and arguably, listen to me, this lie is about self as much as it is about the other person. He or she is nothing without me. I want you to hear that tone. He or she is nothing without me. This is a lie sometimes that we believe about our exes. Sometimes this is a lie that we believe about our current spouses. And oftentimes this is a lie that we even believe about ourselves. 
See, self. When you say self, Pastor Willie, what are you saying? This lie could be revealing of our attitude as it relates to how we reflect or look at ourselves. Philippians 2 and 4, the A portion of that verse says, Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Did you catch it? In order to combat selfishness in a relationship with someone else, we cannot afford to just focus on ourselves. We must evaluate if there's any indication of arrogance, if there's any indication of pride, if there's any indication of selfishness. Why is that? Because selfishness is brutal on relationship and particularly in marriage. Because it is the relationship that you must give up your right of being right, give up your right of being a sole person because the Bible says the two shall become one and what God has joined together let no man put asunder. But in order for that to work effectively you must give up yourself she must or he must give up themselves so that the two may become one in the Lord now the Bible goes on to say in that verse because this deals with the other side he says let each of you look out not only for his own interest but also for the interests of others notice the passage that there must be a shift in our focus in relationships he did not say that you should not look out for your own interest he says, do not only look out for your own interest. Have you ever been in a relationship, don't raise your hand, with somebody that was selfish? So your problem was your problem, but their problems are everybody's problems. So their bills was your bills, but your bills was... Come on, come on. Their children were your children, but your children were... So because they're, they're worried about and concerned about their own interests and not concerned. And, and the writer says that in a relationship, you must be concerned about the interests of others as well. Listen to me. Having a poor, dismissive, neglectful view of others is not only unbiblical, it is unhealthy. And so we must move ourselves from only focusing on ourselves and shifting it to now focusing on others. What does that look like? Now I'm in a position to bless them in word. I'm in a position now to bless them in deeds. I'm in a position now to bless them with the proper attitude. Notice I said the proper attitude. Because you can give somebody some money, but you can still have a funky disposition when you give it to them. Amen. So, so, so here it is, the third one, I want you to understand that this is a lie that couples believe, and that is, no one else will ever love me. That's a lie. Another way of saying that is, I am nothing without them. And maybe, perhaps you're in a position, if you're sitting here or watching online, maybe you have been devastated because you were in a long-term relationship and then there was a breakup. Maybe for somebody else, you were, you, you were married and then you got divorced. And even though you look back and you say, I left them, you left them and it cost you a price. For somebody else, they left you and you still wanted to be with them. And so now you're dealing with feelings of abandonment. Maybe you have not fallen into that category, but maybe you're a person that says, you know what, I'm, I'm in a place where I was with somebody long term or I was married for somebody long time, long time and, and they died. And so now you are a widow or a widower and you're, you're in a place where you have lost some faith. You've lost faith in God. You've lost faith in humanity. You lost faith in even this idea of long-term relationships. The Bible says even in the last days that people would forbid to marry. For married of different reasons, but a lot of times it's from our painful experiences. 
So now you're in a place where you've, you've gotten past that and now you have went into a courtship. So you're, you're seeing somebody that you're serious about. Or, or perhaps you've taken it another step and now you're engaged. Maybe for somebody else you're saying, I've already passed that and you just got remarried or now you're married. But if the truth be told, you may still feel lost. You may still feel broken. You may still feel frustrated. And the reason is, is because you're still dealing with the pain of the past experience. You're frustrated and it's justified because you're frustrated about things that you should be frustrated about. You invested your time. You've invested your energy. You invested your finances. You even invested your love and it did not produce the desired results. But this is the thing that you need to hear me, dear heart. You need to hear me, brother. I want you to hear me. Listen, it is extremely helpful and beneficial to any person in a relationship with another to know that you're first and foremost loved by God. I'm going to say it again. You are loved by God. Some of you are from Missouri, so let me help you. The Bible says in John 3 and 16, wait a minute, let me say. For you who say, well, what does he mean by Missouri? Missouri is the show me state. There we go. I just... Because some people say, well, he's been saying that for years. I don't know what that means. Missouri is the show me. Okay, so now y'all help. As people come to the church, y'all just help them out, okay? All right. So, so understand, as you, you, you need to know that you are loved by God. Say that with me. I am loved by God. How do we know that? John 3.16 says, God so loved the world. Look at your name and say, that includes you. That he gave. So God is not only a lover, but he is a giver. That's why you got to be concerned about somebody saying they're born again and they don't mind loving you, but they ain't giving nothing to you. So, I'll move that on for another time. So, so here, you understand that you are first, foremost, loved by God. That's why we're starting a singles ministry here in, at CCC uh, coming shortly. Uh, we're uh, drafting the vision statement and the, uh, the vision and the mission statement because we need our singles, our adult singles in our church community and our faith community to know that first of all, it's going to be called complete. The reason it's called complete because you need to know that you're already complete in him. And if you don't see yourself complete in him, you'll be saying silly stuff like, he completes me. Nobody completes you but God. And the reason that, listen to me, stay with me. The reason that is so dangerous, because when you say that he completes you or she completes you, then what are you when I'm not there? That's too much pressure to put on another human, y'all. You can't put that type of pressure. I don't know what I do without you. I don't know what I do to myself without you. You just told them you are not healthy enough to be in a relationship with nobody. Lord, I don't know how I'm going here, but y'all help pray for me here. So the Bible says, remember in Luke and Mark 22, you can study this later. It says in 37 uh, through 39, he says this, because God so loved you, he says there's an expectation that God has for you, and that is this. Here it is. He says, I want you to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says this. He says, and love your neighbor. Come on, love your neighbor. That means God expects you to love yourself. We're coming against this old demonic spirit talking about I'm not lovable. The devil is a liar. You are lovable. You are respectable. You are honorable. The devil is a liar. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you, including loving yourself. So you got to settle that in your heart that you are lovable. Let me tell you another lie while we're here that sometimes couples believe, and that is no one else will love him or her the way I love them. 
We say that in relationships. First of all, here, here, let me repeat the lie again. No one else will love him or her the way I love them. That's a lie. Well, let me say it this way. First of all, that's none of your business. They have moved on, and you should as well. Whoever loves them in the future, frankly, is none of your business. The sad thing is this. There are people who actually believe this lie while married to someone else. Secondly, once again, this could be classified as a statement of arrogance. Perhaps you have made yourself an idol in your mind without even knowing it. No one else will ever love them the way I love them. But listen to this. These individuals may say, oh, I've moved on. They, they don't matter anymore. But the fact is, if you find yourself constantly talking about how irrelevant someone else is, you just proved how relevant they really are in your life. Never get on Facebook or social media talking about, I'm not thinking about them, and you took time to post, you're not thinking about them, because you just proved that you're thinking about them. And even though you didn't use no names, everybody in your circle know who you're talking about. So we got to grow up and stop believing these lies. But I've discovered in pastoring that oftentimes this is really a cry for help. Why? Because people believe this lie while being married or involved with someone else. Listen, this is what you got to do. You got to let it go. You missed it. You got to let it go. Okay, one more time. You got to let it go. Come on, say it with me. You got to let me tell you why you got to let it go. You got to let that go so that you can pour your attention, so you can pour your focus, so you can pour your passion, so you can pour your favor into your husband, even if he hadn't showed up yet. Pour your favor even into your wife, even if she hadn't showed up into your life. God is preparing you for the gift that he's about to send you so that you don't go looking for a man. You're looking for the man. You're not looking for a woman. Oh, just any woman will do. Anybody I can bump kneecaps with. Anybody that'll have my babies. The devil is a liar. Marriage is something that God instituted. And what we've done is we've taken that which was sacred and we've made it. Listen, we've, we've lost the consecration of marriage. We got to let it go. Look at your neighbor and say, let it go. Let me, let me give you one more. Let me give you one more. Let me give you one more lie that couples believe. And that is, this relationship will not last. Well, the mistake with this idea is that we get to a point where we get into self-fulfilling prophecy. This relationship will not last. Now, that's not to say that some relationships shouldn't last because that was not the person God ever intended you to have. And, and you started going through courtship and, and you realized real quick that, okay, it's not that you're a bad person and, we're, and I'm not a bad person. It's just we're not compatible. We're not even going in the same direction. We don't share the same ideas. We don't say, share the same uh, vision uh, for life and for future and for all of those different things. So, so during your courtship, this is the time to get to know all of those things, particularly single. Oh, Lord, I, I got to get into this. I'm going to do a series uh, in the, early in the new year called Lies Parents Believe.
because I want you to understand that it is important as a single parent, but particularly single mothers, you need to understand that during your courtship, two things that you should be interested in, not how fine he is, not how much money he makes, not what cologne he wears, not if he e eats at the finest restaurants. The first thing you need to be doing is, can I trust this joker with my heart? Because that is the most valuable thing that you'll have. The second thing you need to be understanding if you're a single parent is, can I trust them with my children? Can I trust them with my children? Now, if you are still thinking about getting married and you've already checked no on both those blotches, you need to set up an appointment with Belle and I so we can walk you through the process because obviously you've lost your mind somewhere down the road. Pastor Willie, ooh, that sounds so rude. I'm trying to do anything I can to wake people up to say the devil is trying to wreak havoc in your life and he is not just after you, he's after every one of your children. And if you open the door to your ignorance, he is not just coming after you. He's coming after your babies. He's coming after your grandbabies. He's coming after everything that you got. So, 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 so here it is. Here it is. Here's my, here's, here it is. The lie we believe is that this relationship will not last. Well, let me say this. Let me calm down. <laughs> Evaluate what you are doing as a couple that is contributing to this disruptive, damaging, uh, destructive, disruptive uh, attitude in your relationship. This is the things you should be asking yourself. When you're in your relationship, you should say, this relationship concerns me, and this is why. This relationship causes me anxiety, and this is why. Why is that important to investigate, to try to mitigate the things that is causing damage in your relationship? See, when you're not used to things going well, particularly in relationships, some individuals will actually sabotage their own relationships due to the uncertainty of the future. Did you know that there's people who have good men and women in their lives, blessings to them and to their children, and they will sabotage the relationship? You say, Pastor Willie, why do they do that? Well, I've discovered over the years two prominent things that I've seen in, in, in marriage, uh, in, in counseling couples. The first one is this, and it all centers around insecurity. But the first one is this, the fear of the person leaving. Because no one else has stayed, he or she will eventually leave also. Daddy didn't stay. The mama that I called my mother didn't stay. So it's only a matter of time that you'll leave also. So let me rush the process so that I can control the timeline. I told you Wednesday night that anybody, I work law enforcement, and one of the things that they, we, one of the trainings we went through was something called DIVIT, which is Domestic Violence Intervention Training. I told you that in training, you realize that there's a cycle of abuse between the victim and the victimizer, the abuser and those who have been abused. There's a cycle. People who have been abused for a long time, they can almost see the cycle starting. Listen to this. 
A person, let's just say a woman, she can be so accustomed to the rhythm of her abuser that she can know that he's getting ready to have an outburst in about three days. The problem is his little child, the birthday of the five-year-old is tomorrow. So what she will do, not only because she's been abused, because she knows he's an abuser, that's his M.O., she will provoke it so that he can get into the cycle of his abuse. She will take the attack, allow him to beat her so that her baby can have a birthday party that is not interrupted by this abusing man. Do you not see the psychology in such a way of thinking? And even though you may not be in a situation that you are being abused or those things are not going on, you need to know this. Those things happen in relationships. And so because of the uncertainty of I don't know when this is going to be over, I will now savage, sabotage the relationship because I can't deal with the stress of not knowing when this is going to end. Another thing that I've noticed is that sometimes there's a fear of sustainability in the relationship, so people will sabotage. What do you mean, Pastor Willard? I don't feel, here, I don't feel I have what it takes to keep a man or a woman like you. And I'm even surprised that you have been together, we've been together this long. So since it is only a matter of time when you will wake up and see what I see in me, let me destroy it now on my own terms so I don't have to live with the fear of not knowing when you're going to leave me. I want you to understand that these are all lies the enemy has spoken to couples. Some of those lies are about self. Some of those lies we perpetrate on other people. But it's still a lie. And my challenge to you is to recognize that we have to. I told you last week two things we need to do. We need to pray and we need to do the work. Because the mistake that the church has made over years and years, we would say, just pray about it. But you have to understand, faith without works is dead. So we don't just pray, you got to do the work. Listen, next step. This week, as we get ready to close, here, we don't just pray. We don't just do the work. We got to do the work right. And God has already given us what we need to do to get it right. Sometimes we don't get it right. I must confess that uh, <laughs> I was sharing with them at the 9 o'clock service. I needed a shelf, this is many years ago, I needed a shelf in my office and so I went to a, a store. I don't know if it was out of town or here local, but I do remember the box was heavy. And I finally picked this box up and carried it in. And when I brought this box uh, in, it was a, it was a wooden shelf. Uh, I unboxed it. I removed all the material and the content out of the box. I laid out the pieces. And then I secured, of course, the, uh, the instruction manual. Uh, I wanted to check to see what the uh, required tools uh, would be. And then after I seen what tools, I threw the manual away because men don't read instructions. And so I didn't need those anymore. I'm just teasing. I opened up the instructions and I started, to, I started my assembly. And guess what? Before you knew it, I'd already assembled, it, assembled the, sh the shelf and it was done. But then I noticed something strange. Hear me on this. I noticed something strange. The top of the shelf was odd looking. It was rough, 
and it was unfinished. Then I noticed it. The top part of the shelf was installed upside down. Then what I did, I took a nice, plush, decorative drape. Come on, come on, don't, come on, come on, don't shout me down when I'm preaching good. And please don't leave me out there while I'm being honest. And why, you say, Pastor Willie, why would you cover it up? Because of, after all that work, I did not want to acknowledge, here it is, that I got it wrong. After all that work, I did not want to take the time to unassemble what was just assembled, only to realize what I assembled was wrong, and it needed to be disassembled so I could reassemble it. The problem was... People seen the decorative drape, but I knew what was in it. I knew what was being hidden. I knew what was being veiled. And what do you do when you're covering up something that you know is not right? Listen, listen, it was new, but it wasn't right. It was pretty, but it wasn't right. It was together, but it wasn't right. It was standing, but it wasn't right. It was even covered, but it wasn't right. What do you do when you've ignored what needs to be done for a quick fix? There's some people in this room. You know God is saying, let's get that right. And all you're doing is covering it. And it's a mess. And now all of a sudden you leave it like that and now all of a sudden it begins to stink. And instead of cleaning the mess up, you just go buy more Lysol. You go buy more perfume. You, bore, you buy more cologne and you spray that on it in hopes that it will take care of itself. But all it's doing is becoming more and more rotten. This is the other thing I need to tell somebody in this room. You cannot make God take what he's not going to take. Listen to me. You cannot make God take. The most powerful thing about Cain and Abel's story is that God has a standard. And when God rejects Cain's sacrifice, this is what God's saying. I'm not accepting that because I know what I gave you. I'm not accepting that because I know what's in you. And so some of you think just because God loves you, he will just accept anything from you, and that's a lie. It's not enough to do your best. That's what we tell Little League. God doesn't tell you to do your best. He said, do what I told you to do. How many of you raising kids say, well, long as they did their best. I told them to wash the dishes, but long as they do their best. I told them to go cut the grass, and they did a third of it. You make sure you follow through because you're saying, I know what's in you. You are capable of doing all of this. Now, let me tell you something. Our relationship with God is not based on merit. I don't want to go to that extreme because some people are so merit-driven, you think as long as you're doing right, God loves you, and when you're doing wrong, God don't, God don't love you no more. That's a lie also. God loves you with an everlasting love. But the mistake we do is we default in this idea of grace, thinking that God will just accept anything, and we call it grace. It's a lie. 
if that's the case, then you could beat your wife and say, God, I'm sorry. You could rape your children and say, hey, God, I got it wrong. I was drinking. Do you think God is accepting that just because you said, I'm sorry? God has an expectation based on what he knows you're capable of doing. So today, this is what we do. We're going to make some declarations. What I want you to do is I want you, as we close, even you online, as we get ready to close, there's some things that we need to declare. And as we prepare, I want you to know that God loves you with an everlasting love. There's some things that we're going to cover in this series that not only will heal you, it's going to build you up. Because if the truth be told, you have been tore down on the inside with people's harmful words, with other people's neglect, with other people's mental, emotional, financial abuse. They give to you as long as you're in the place they think you should be. So it's not about covenant. It's about how I feel about you at this moment. So all of a sudden, Bella is not warming up to me like she needs to. So I'm saying, look, I hope you can get a candle because I ain't paying the electric bill. Hope you get, look, get the kids a flashlight. So my obligation to care for her in our covenant is now suspended because how I feel in the moment. That's only because you have a contract and not a covenant. Covenant is seated in heavenly places. In the Old Testament, when people got married, one of the things that they would do is they would enter into what we call a salt covenant. They would come to the altar and family representatives on both sides of the family would come and each would bring salt and they would bring it and put it in the bag of the couple. And the reason they would do that is because this family representing the groom would put salt. This family representing the bride would put salt. And it was a sign that their covenant was forever because you could never go into the bag of salt and pull out your crystals again. So it all got mingled together and nobody could look in the bag and say, those crystals belong to us and this crystal belonged to them. It was all mixed together, symbolic of the fact that we're in this for life. God wants you healed. But I believe it's important that we make some declarations today. Let us stand as we close. You say, Pastor Willie, what is a declaration? A declaration is a formal statement of intent. The Bible says in the book of Proverbs, life and death is in the power of the tongue. Sister Patty, if you would, I want you to put up 1 Peter 3 and 7. Every man, every man, regardless of age, every male, I want you to read, see this. But if you're married, I really want you to pay attention to what he says. Listen to what he says. Husbands, likewise, dwell with them, talking about their wives, dwell with their, your wife with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel. Not only should you be concerned about her mental, emotional, or financial state, you should never let, any, listen to me husbands, you should never let anybody else damage that. That's why, listen to me single parents, 
single wives. That's why that man that comes into your life when your kids treat you any kind of way, it irritates him. Because you're a person of peace, he's a man of order. And so he has this natural instinct within him that if the kids is running afoul to you, he's running afoul to him. Because he's a person of order. So he says, as the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life. Notice, heirs together. That your prayers may not be hindered. Every married man needs to know this. That if you run afoul to your wife, God says it hinders your prayer life. I don't know about you, but I need God to hear my prayers. I need God to hear me. But if you run afoul, I'm not saying you won't have disagreements. I'm not saying that you won't have an argument. I am saying that even in your arguments, even in your disagreements, God says, I still want you to handle her. Here it is, with honor. As I gave you this gift. Respect her as a gift that came from me. Honor that gift. So here it is. Our declaration of intent. I want you to repeat after me. Because there are some lies that we, we, there are some lies that we believe, right? We believe the lie that, that she really doesn't love me or he doesn't love me. We believe the lie, they're nothing without me. Some of us have believed the lie, no one else will ever love me. Some of us have believed the lie that no one else will love him or her the way I love them. Some of us have believed the lie, this relationship will not last. When I was stationed in Anchorage, Alaska, one of the things that was around, uh, my daughter was asking me about this. She said, Dad, what are some of the strange things that have happened as it relates to words that are being spoken in your life? Well, first of all, y'all know this. I, this is part of my testimony. I had somebody talk about me to me, and they didn't even know who I was. That'll trip you out. I had somebody talk about me in a negative way, and they didn't even know it was me they were talking to. Okay, move on, move on. But she was asking me, she said, what is some of the, the things? Well, when me and Bella was stationed in Alaska, they said y'all's marriage will never last because people go through the Alaskan experience and more times than not, it ends in divorce. But here it is. Next year will be 30 years and we're taking a licking and keep on ticking. It has not been without challenge. It has not been without difficulty, but we're here. So here it is. I want you to say this with me. I choose not to or no longer believe the lies of the enemy that's one of our declarations let me give you another one I will speak words of life health wellness into the lives of my friends and my family here's another one and I want you to really hear me if you're married but all of us can make this declaration say this I will use my words to heal you, to build you up, and to never, and to never, and to never tear you down, nor contaminate your heart, or to destroy you. Listen, when you get home, or when you get your significant other, I want you to declare this to them personally. I've already done this. I love you and only you. You say, wait a minute, what about your relationship with God? My wife can never be put in God's status. Why? Because I have a revelation of who God is. But this is the thing you need to capture. 
Nobody else should be in your spouse position either. So much so that God even respects your covenant. Prove it, Pastor Willard. Number one, the Bible says the bedroom is undefiled. God says in the marriage covenant, he says, I respect y'all's time together. Everything else he calls adultery and fornication and perversion and all that. He said, but in your relationship, in the marriage, it's undefiled. He says, I respect that. The Bible also teaches us that when it comes to relationships, God says a single person is more available to advance the cause of Christ than a married couple. Not just because of availability, but God says because of priority. You know what God is saying? I respect your marriage. And I understand that you have to do some things of putting them first. Bella doesn't come before God, but Bella does come before Cornerstone Covenant Church. Bella, I'm telling you, Bella comes before ministry. I can't give myself to you if this ain't right. God didn't send me to Big Spring to be your buddy. He sent me here to represent him in the kingdom. And if we develop friendships along the way, for you who serve in your churches, wherever you live, do not put what you do for ministry before your spouse. I'm not saying, listen, that's why your relationship needs to be healthy. Because sometimes your relationship can become so manipulative that now they don't want you to do anything. Not because you're not called to serve God in his kingdom just like they are. But because of insecurity, they feel like they can't give up on anything or anyone. So understand, God expects you to serve him honorably and serve your relationship. Let me give you this last one. And this is really our collective prayer. And I want to tell you what it is so we can pray together. Heavenly Father, reveal to us the other lies, lies that we have chosen to believe and give us everything we need to overcome it. That's a simple prayer that I want us to come in agreement with. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, thank you for our time today. And it is our collective and individual prayer that in this moment of transparency, we recognize we need you. But you said, make our prayer request be made known unto you. And so our prayer today, Heavenly Father, reveal to us, come on, y'all pray it with me, the lies that we have chosen to believe and give us everything we need to overcome it. As we close out, listen to me. Our church anniversary is this coming Sunday. Pastor Wendell Davis from Lubbock was going to come in and help us celebrate our 13th church anniversary. I'm asking you on behalf of myself, Emma, and Cornerstone Covenant Church. You'll get that later when you see the video on Facebook. Uh, we're inviting you. Because I know you, some of y'all say, he said Emma. I thought he said his wife was Bella. <laughs> Emma is a young lady that has been doing invites to church anniversaries for the last four, four, four years. And so we've watched her grow. The idea is to watch her do it up until her 18th birthday so that we can see the development and growth, not just in her life, but in the ministry. So I want to personally give you an invite to join us this Wednesday for the Wednesday edition where we'll get into some Q&A and then join us Sunday at both 9 and 11 to join us as we celebrate 13 years of the faithfulness of our God. Thank you so much. I know we stayed over, but I'm so glad you was here this morning. God loves you and so do we. Have a great weekend. God bless you.